As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures, but there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Gwen Frey, current founder and lead developer at Chump Squad. So join us as we explore our journey. Is a better home awaiting in the sky, in the sky. So today I'm joined by Gwen. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, as we discovered, as I discovered only moments ago, you freshly married just yesterday. Congratulations! Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, not that different from the several days before, but uh, yesterday was great. It was fantastic. No, I'm thrilled to hear it, but yeah, unfortunately, 2020 is uh, wreaking havoc with maybe other plans and those sorts of things. But I'm excited for you to get to have your honeymoon, and of course, you're married. So there's a there's a whole new kind of walk of life that you're now beginning, and that's that's fantastic to hear. Oh yeah, I mean, well, there's a limit to how bad things can be. I think well, exactly. Yeah, no matter how, you know, this year's thrown everything at you, but no matter what, I always have him, and it, that means there's just a limit to how much life can suck. It just can't suck that much because he's in it, and so it's good. I'm that, that's all. I'm really happy for you. So this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to developers from all around the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and basically everything that's kind of led to today this this current point in in your career but before we get to your actual career in games i'd love to pick your brain a little bit about some of the games that you maybe played before you actually started developing developing them in any sort of way do you recall what the first game was that you played the very first one it's hard to or, say because yeah yeah it's, it's always a little bit hard to work out off the top of your head or something you know what were some of those early gaming experiences like well definitely a lot of hand-me-downs from my brother early on um yep. in the Nintendo and N64 era, I think. Uh, I remember Mario. I remember uh, Donkey Kong back in the day. Um, I think I got more into them during the N64 era than yeah, the okay. Nintendo era. Definitely, I was way into Pokemon when I was a kid. I remember... Uh, when I we def- all? Yeah, I caught them all. Uh, I remember that. I remember getting really into MMOs around high school. Um, I was Any in particular? World of Warcraft specifically everyone toppled down that well at some point yeah i mean i i did play everquest but it wasn't like wow wow just grabbed me i I think everybody has that game that hooked them that multiplayer game that hooked them you know because i can think of everybody's got the different game that's single player for me i I think uh i I can list loads of them i think final fantasy 7 was the one where i just took the family computer moved it into my room and it was my (laughs) computer at that point and Um, you don't get it back until i'm done no, like that until the game is over, this is mine. And that that was <laughs> that was what, you know, maybe that was what made me a gamer. But I think everybody's got an, a multiplayer game. Uh, for a lot of my friends, it was Diablo. Uh, uh, the first time that they played with other people online and, and how that kind of expanded what gaming was to them. And for me, that yeah. game was World of Warcraft. Um, so that's an I interesting way it. to look at it. I, I think about my my early days of gaming and it sounds like that we kind of walked a similar-ish path i kind of started on the super nintendo there and then things really kind of escalated again as you mentioned with the nintendo 64 and the playstation into my life and all those sort of things but i was single player for decades and just didn't really budge whatsoever i'd you know i'd dabble in the occasional multiplayer thing if i had friends over we might play goldeneye on the 64 or something like that but i can't say that i really immersed myself in any sort of a multiplayer thing until 
maybe Borderlands, which really? at that point I at that point I was kind of close to twenty. Like I just there was just nothing really that grabbed me. So, huh? Yeah. I don't know. It was a. It, I think you're still right. There is always that uh, multiplayer experience that people kind of latch onto. I guess you know. Again, I probably dabbled with Smash Brothers and those sort of things over the journey too, but. There's probably nothing I really attached myself to until that, so I might be one of the the later later bloomers in that particular regard. But I think you're yeah. right, though, in terms of the sentiment, though. <clears throat> yeah, I because there's different versions of your first games. I think there's just the games that stay with you, the ones that the, yes. the first time you experience a specific genre. And I think experiencing multiplayer and having that hit and hit well for you specifically, everyone's got that that game. I think they do at least, or at least they will soon. I uh, yeah, have I that right. game that, that's multiplayer where it's just like, oh, a game could also be this. And it's huge. And for me, that was World of Warcraft. Uh, I was obsessed with that game for years. Like, <laughs> it was absurd. Like, I almost dropped out of college because I was playing too much WoW and I didn't really like my major at the time. I was just obsessed with it. That's that that's impressive commitment to the game. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it was like a job at that point. I, I think I was... I mean... I started playing in vanilla WoW. I played for years. I was the at one point I was the I rerolled on a new server called Tychondrius, and then I was the guild leader of like the second best raiding guild on Tychondrius after yeah, okay. a while. And then and at that point I, it was literally a full time job just managing these people and managing this raid. And then we Burning Crusade came out, and I had to split my raid into two like an A team and a B team, and there was all the guild drama. Of course, it would. anyone who gets bundled into the B team is not going to be happy that they're in the B team. Exactly. And uh, it, it was just a whole thing, man. I, I, but I lived that. <laughs> like, this is my job. And school was this thing that I had to do that would take me away from my job. And so it had to happen. As, and, like, I had to find a way to fit that in. And it was a major drag, which is not the way you should probably look at life when you're uh, in that. Uh, yeah, that like, window of time. Yeah, you know, I said it was stupid. I should have realized at that point that I was going to be a game developer, but I had no idea. I like it didn't occur to me that people make games. I was just obsessed with playing them. To yeah, a you degree, just stuck that was under absurd. that World of Warcraft rock. Yeah, yeah, I was one of those people. <laughs> oh, um, so normally I would then ask how, how did your kind of taste in games start to develop a little bit, but it seems like it was only World of Warcraft for for years. So. Well, um, yeah, that, that was definitely... There's certain games that you play that take over. Uh, and yeah. I'll say, um, at any given time, there'll be the times when I'm playing a lot of games, and then there's this just chunk of years where I was only playing World of Warcraft. And then I went back yeah, to playing okay. a, a variety of games, and there was a chunk of years where I only played League of Legends. And it's like yeah, this okay. weird blind spot. Like, I don't know anything else that came out in those two to three years. Like, I just missed Just them. completely consumed. Yeah, totally. Uh, so... Uh, you mentioned obviously when it came to World of Warcraft that there wasn't uh, like you didn't really necessarily equate the the intense playing of that game or other games to actually getting involved in game development at all. Was there a game at all that kind of awoke you to that, or you kind of snapped out and go, "Oh, hang on, there's there's people behind this at all, and maybe I could get involved in that"? Did you have that sort of a moment at all? Um, so for me, it wasn't so much any specific game. I, I was always a person that played a ton of video games and I played a ton of pen and paper games. Um, and I loved this hobby. It was, like I said, taking over my life in a lot of ways, but uh, I never, it never occurred to me that people do this. And I think I just had to be shown that like, this was a career because I just didn't yeah, okay. know. I, this was before. Now there's game development majors, Courses right? and yeah. 
Yeah, like 13, oh man, more than that, 15, let's see, I graduated 13 years ago, 14 years ago, so it was before that, back when I started getting into college, I guess. Yes. Uh, like, there there was no concept that this was a career, at least not in, in my view. Um, but I did happen to go to a school that was a technical school, I went to RIT. Uh, I majored in um, film and animation because I thought I loved Disney films. I loved animation. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. I'll be an animator, right? Because um, I, I could see that that was a career. When I went to Disney World, I saw people animating. I'm like, okay, this is a job. And I figured it wouldn't pan out. I figured I would fail and uh, just become a programmer like everyone else in my family. And uh, so I went to RIT. So when I inevitably failed, I could just bounce on. You can transition across. Mm-hmm. But what happened was I ended up in this school that was almost entirely programmers with a, a bunch of the students there were getting really interested in game development. And I was one of the handful of 3D artists. And so they reached, uh, they, there was this club that was spinning up. It was a, a game development club. A bunch of programmers wanted to get together and make video games. And they canvassed the school looking for artists and they found me. And they were like, well, you make video games with us. And it was like, oh, hell yes, yes please. Like the, <laughs> The second I started, it was just like, a, it just hit. It's like, this is what I should do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I'm done here. And it was great because I was pretty lost until that moment. Like, yeah, I okay. really, like, until that moment, I did not have that clarity. And so it was about halfway through college. I just literally, like, I found that club, realized that's what I was going to do, and then just spent the rest of my life doing that. So, so did did that mean that uh, the course never went compl- uh, never actually got completed in the end, or did you still take those like those skills and the the education you were getting there, and that that was able to help assist with the the animation that you were doing, so in the, the game space. I uh, how do I put this? I went to the school of film and animation with the intention of majoring in three D animation. So I was yep. already doing three D modeling, three D art, three D animation work. Um, and part of that program was you were allowed to to kind of craft your own degree to a certain extent you could find your own specialty and so the program was definitely designed for people to make films and submit them to film festivals but the program was also having a very difficult time getting uh, schools in general want students to be placed in jobs uh there's stats for this right and so i went to the uh I, i basically went to my advisor and i said i think i can get a job if you let me focus my uh, efforts towards making art for video games, um, and here's the courses that I want to take, and here's what we'll call the degree. And we kind of came <laughs> to a consensus about that. And, and that part was easy. Um, the hard part came my senior year, the housing market collapsed, and we were entering a global recession, and it was extremely difficult. All of a sudden, there were no jobs anywhere. Uh, yeah. And I happened to go to GDC and I had a lead on a, a job and, and I followed it up and I I managed to get uh, my, my first gig right out of GDC, but I hadn't technically graduated yet. And so I had to go back to my advisor and I basically said, hey, uh, I know I have six months of school left, but I've wrapped up pretty much all the major courses except for these two. Either I'm going to leave and not get a degree or you're going to let me finish these online from California because I'm going to go take this job now. There are no jobs. And they kind of did the calculus and realized that nobody else in my graduating class was going to get employed and they needed their stats to look good. So I managed to negotiate them. You know, like we worked it out and they managed to give me a degree and I managed to finish that up online from California. 
It was very nice, strong arming. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was a combination of things like uh, and it was a really intense time. I, I think you enter these moments where there's a global recession or moments like right now where things are just so insane, where people just need to bend a little and be a little bit understanding because, I mean, it's not my fault the housing market collapsed. It's not, you know, the students that are graduating now or that are currently in in college dealing with, I I mean, I I can't even wrap my mind around what the kids are going through right now. Yeah. They're graduating high school and going through college right now. Like I can't, I have no idea how they're dealing with this. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a by, by profession. I'm actually a teacher, and I teach students in their final year. And there's there's an uneasiness. I mean, in, in their regard, they're supposed to do their final exams in what is it now? What are we now? September. So about two months. And whilst they're they're keeping afloat, there is this constant. But what happens afterwards? Like, <laughs> if we, how do how do we do exams for starters with you know the social distancing and all those sorts of things and. Uh, but then how do we, what, what happens with our courses? What, you know, how do we get in? What's the, there's just this constant air of the unknown and it, it really makes them anxious. So I can, I feel, I feel for them and I can understand what you were talking about though, when it comes to trying to emerge in a point where there's a recession, because mm-hmm. in terms of jobs and the economy, it's a fairly bad time as well. Yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody involved in education mostly wants their students to succeed and go and succeed changes depending on what your personal goals are. For some yes. people, succeed means to enter film festivals and things like that. Um, for me, it was important for me to get a job. I, I didn't really have any interest in, in being part of Sundance. <laughs> I wanted to make video games very badly, and that was clear, and I had an opportunity to do it. And my professors were not going to in any way try to inhibit that. Um, and so they, they worked with me on it, and I, I'm really grateful that they did. So that job that you spoke about, that you, your first opportunity kind of emerged from GDC, was that at Slipgate? Yep, that was Slipgate Ironworks. Yep. Mm-hmm. So how did uh, how did that conversation actually begin in the first place? Because obviously, you know, GDC it's a it's a hub of activity. There's people everywhere, heading in lots of different directions, lots of meetings, lots of conferences, lots of hustle and bustle. How did that actually emerge in the first place? How did you happen to bump into them and partner up? I mean, it was this was quite a while back. Well, like where was this 13 or so years ago right so yeah it wasn't quite as difficult then as it is now oh, uh, for sure. but it was still it was still hard it was hard to find somebody that was actually a person that worked at the studio versus just a uh like a hiring manager of some sort it yeah okay. it was largely luck like i had a portfolio i'd worked on very hard um it showcased advanced rigging techniques i had a specialty that i knew people wanted um i mean there's certain de- I basically looked around in the market. I, I, well, in a way, I, I was very fortunate. I really liked technical art and technical animation. And this was before there was technical animation. Back when there was just character rigging was a thing that people suddenly yeah. realized they needed. And they didn't have the word technical animation back then. And it didn't mean everything it means now. But I I knew that rigging was a new field and that there weren't many people that did it and that there was a demand for it. And this was true in both film and video games. Uh, at the time, this was an extremely new field, and I was at the cutting edge of it, and I put together a reel that showed it. Um, and I had a, at the time, it was pretty rare to have a student that actually had uh, game prototypes and yeah, okay. prove that their stuff was working in games. Now it's easy, right? But like now there's. But at the time, and, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. Time, nothing was nearly as accessible as it is now. Yeah, so I could just show that, and I could talk about it. And on top of that, it just so happened, I. 
had been obsessed with World of Warcraft and I could explain why the Druid tank was a superior tank to the Warrior tank at a time when Slipgate Ironworks was working on an MMO and yes. they were obsessed with MMOs and uh, they uh, so here I was I filled a very specific need that they had and I managed to talk to the um, the lead tech I think they called them the tech art director and the art director yep. right there at GDC and we just got it figured out and so, so that time at the studio, uh, what did you make of that? What was some of the high points and some of the challenges <laughs> along the way? Man, that's hard to, that's a hard one. Uh, so I was at Slipgate, keep in mind, Slipgate Ironworks then is not the same thing as Slipgate Ironworks yes, now. Yes, no, it's very they, different, yeah. They sold the uh, name to a different company yeah. entirely. So uh, don't Google this, but yeah, Slipgate Ironworks, I was there for six months before the studio closed and everybody lost their jobs. Uh, so... It was amazing in that I learned a lot very quickly and I was put in charge of things uh, that I probably had no business being in charge of. And there's a lot of things that I probably still can't say online about no, that, that. that whole experience. It was a very in- unusual one. Um, the, the learning was absolutely fast-tracked. Oh, yes. Well, the learning yeah. was fast-tracked. Uh, the game was something. The gazillion was really something. It's a whole thing. I can't, the, no, I, I can appreciate it. Was, yeah, it was involved in a lot of uh, legal lawsuits and things too. So, But yeah. in any case, none of that matters. I was there for six months. I Transferred over to secret ton. identity from mm-hmm. there. Yeah. I lost my job with everybody else. I was laid off. But uh, about within like two weeks, I managed to move to another company that was in the same building, technically with the same yeah. publisher. Publisher. Uh, so I moved over uh, to what was called Gargantuan and then eventually renamed Secret Identity. Yeah. So um, was there was there any sort of, given given what had just happened and Gazillion mm-hmm. being at the at the top level of all of that, was there a degree of anxiety about transferring to another studio that was under that same umbrella? Oh man. The anxiety was more that so I was laid off when everybody else was and for several like for a solid week there I just was I can't explain what this is like. I had just, I had just negotiated. Uh, I went through the stress of finding a way to graduate in spite of not being there. Moved across the oh, country. Yes. I was. I have no money. I'm on the other side of the country, and I just lost my job. Uh, I was renting. Like I had a, a year-long lease on my apartment. I had literally just moved out there. I've uprooted my life. I mean, California and New uh, New York are pretty far apart. <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have anything. I was fucking terrified. I remember yeah. just I, I looked at my reel and I was like, "What can I, what can I use from uh, Slipgate Ironworks to get a job?" I, I was like hitting my parents up for for a loan. <laughs> So it means that you weren't, like, even though it was under the same publisher, you weren't really going to discriminate at all. An opportunity comes up, I'll take it. Yeah, basically, man. Like, they, uh, and and I think they knew that. they There was only a handful of us that moved over from, I, I think, I think four of us out of the hundreds at Slipgate Ironworks Ooh, ended up moving yeah, okay. over to Secret Identity. A couple of the other ones moved over to, to a different gazillion studio, so it wasn't like that's all that was saved. But, but yeah, I, I think it was pretty well known. I. In my short time at uh, at Slipgate Ironworks, I had managed to impress a handful of people that um, I appar- it ended up being the people I needed to impress to move over to be a part of this new studio, Secret Identity. 
Um, I mean, it's, it's handy. A little bit of luck worked in your favour. But, uh, yeah, that week that you're talking about, I'd imagine, wouldn't oh, have been was... a pleasant week. No, man. <laughs> I aged a couple of years in that week. <laughs> I remember uh, I, was, I was lying in bed and I was just like, wake me up when I have a job. <laughs> I just did not get out of the bed for that week. It was brutal. Yeah, yeah, I, I, can, I can imagine that'd be yeah, an unbelievable amount of stress upon you. Again, given the circumstances, everything that led up to that point as well with the yeah. move and the study you know, and everything there. And it's weird in hindsight because I look back now and I'm like, well, I didn't have family or, you know, in hindsight, you're so mobile when you're young. Like in hindsight, it really wasn't the end of the world. I should have breathed a little. I had a great portfolio. I could have went to work anywhere. And I really did just take the first available job, but I was terrified. And the housing market had collapsed and it felt like everybody I knew was having struggling to get work. And so I grabbed the first thing. No, that's that's fair enough, though. I mean, when you've got those external pressures around you and you, you can't necessarily see the forest from the trees, it's... I don't blame you at all for making the decision you made. But uh, by working at Secret Identity, you got to work on Marvel Heroes. Yeah, that and that great? was... Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. I did, I'll admit, I wasn't there all the way until the end of it. I was there yes. when we... I did get to see the studio grow from... Man, there was like seven or eight of us to... By the time I left, there was like 40 or some shit. There was so many people. It was amazing. Uh, and it was amazing working with Dave Brevik specifically. Because this is a person who's very... Hmm... Like opinionated, oh, how he's do I put it? St- strong in his beliefs. Oh, he is, and he's open and he's honest, and he, you can go talk to him about anything. I because this was the the president of Blizzard North back in the way, day. This was yep. the person, the cre- the lead person behind Diablo and Diablo Two, and I could go up to him and I could be like, well, you know, Diablo Two had these sphere uh, circular health bars. Why do health bars have to be like this? And he'd be like, oh, sweet child of summer, have you thought of this? And like we would just. <laughs> Uh, he had anybody could go up to him and question him about anything and, and he would just have that conversation with you and that was wonderful it was a really good time yeah um, I, I can imagine uh dave would have some incredible insights for anyone who's still you know well for anyone of any level of experience but especially if you're still quite new in the industry to work alongside him would have been um in, like immense for for your development in the career yeah, especially early on um, when we were a smaller studio, because Dave Brevik comes from a time when everybody was a designer and there was no so there was no job title designer. Your yeah. designers were your programmers and sometimes your artists, uh, and that was like how Diablo was made. There was nobody with a job title designer. Um, yeah, and so the You're idea kind of a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. And so you hear this thing. There's this thing I hear people talk about that I've never experienced, which is if you don't have a background in design, then you shouldn't have opinions about it. You should let the uh, and I'm, I'm sensitive to this. Like if you're at a very large studio, especially, there's a certain point where you're late in production and you can't have everybody have an opinion about the length of time it takes to reload the machine gun, right? Like at yes. some point, there's somebody who sat down and, and tried a bunch of stuff and figured out how long the, the reload time should take for all of the different guns and has balanced it. And we can't just have a thousand people with a thousand opinions about that. I understand that, right? Like, Yeah, otherwise you'll never get anything done. Nothing will get done. And you have to trust people. You have to let specialists deal with what they specialize in. You have to believe that people have explored their options. Uh, and in a larger studio, the larger your studio is, and the closer you are to ship, the more that becomes true. But we were a very small studio, and we were very far from shipping, and so I, I did not experience that. I got to ask anybody anything early on, and, and I had a great time working early on with Marvel Heroes Online. 
Which would be great because then you get to dabble in other disciplines a little bit as well and explore yeah. other aspects of game design. Sure. I mean, it's not something I did, though, which is a shame. I, I wish I'd... I, in hindsight, I had this opportunity and I did not take advantage of it because I never saw myself as being a designer. Like, back then, I was still always interested in being an animator and a, specifically a technical animator, making tools for an, for artists and for animators. I was always really interested in where art meets uh, technology and in yes. pursuing that, especially back then. These days, I'm far more concerned about design decisions and and that side of game development but back then i just simply wasn't and i look back and i think it's a shame i wish i'd i wish i knew then what i was going to be now i wish i i'd picked his brain more or just generally agitated more as far as the design stuff goes i mean is dave easy enough to just get on the phone and go hey i've got a, i've got a question any chance you can help <laughs> nah. me with? oh man i haven't spoken to him in like uh, since i left really okay, I, and even enough. then like uh, the studio gets big enough like i i didn't you know uh, we just weren't that close, really, compared to... Yeah, I was very close to the art team uh, early on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So at the next step that I've got in your journey from here was we spoke about you know small versus big studios and the, the environments around them. Uh, you went to this little-known studio called Irrational and worked on this little-known project called Bioshock Infinite. How did that opportunity actually emerge in the first place? So how, how did you manage, manage to transfer from working with Dave Brevik to Ken Levine. Yeah, so so I had been on Marvel Heroes Online for two years, and what my job had become at that point, we'd grown the studio, and I had already established this kind of art pipeline. I'd figured out how to rig the characters, and every day I came in for like, I, I would say the my last year on Marvel Heroes Online, all I was doing was skinning characters to an existing rig that I'd already done, and yeah, okay. I didn't feel like I was being creatively pushed, and, and I was bored. Um, and I, E3 happened that year and there was this trailer for Bioshock Infinite and it, it, I mean, the game, the the final game was nothing like that first E3 trailer. Um, but I remember seeing that and it just sparked something in me. Like it it took me back to Final Fantasy VII and all those games I played when I was a kid. And, uh, it was just so beautiful and it was kind of cartoony and kind of pushed It, it. Something about it just reached me as an animator. I was like, man. I wish I could be working on something artistic, something like that. That game looks stunning. And so I um, I saw they were hiring an animator, or specifically a character rigger, and I applied. That's basically all it comes down to. I mean, I, oh, I definitely I definitely like went online, went on LinkedIn, looked at every animator that was there and tried to find if there was any like any friend that could ping somebody directly at the studio because I really wanted that job and I yep. haunted it. Uh, and I, I just basically kind of picked that studio and managed to get there. And then I was there for several years, obviously. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's awesome to hear and, to, and uh, quite cool, the yeah the, the pursuit, the actual journey to get into that studio. Like, I've decided this is what I want and you made it happen, which is, which is yeah. quite cool given they're the one that ultimately makes the decision and yet you willed yourself upon them yeah. essentially and made it happen. That's, that's awesome. Well, thinking back, there was there's definitely been studios I've applied to that I didn't get in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I won't list them but there was times when I tried that and it didn't pan out uh, and there was a, one other studio that, you should never apply to one place keep in mind I was bored I did definitely yep. write down a handful of studios that I really wanted to work at one of them was Irrational uh, yep. I would say I applied at that time to three studios one rejected me outright two accepted me and I picked Irrational um, okay still that's yeah. a pretty pretty good strike rate if I'm being, if I'm being honest <laughs> Yeah, I I was pretty yeah. I I, I wanted it. 
<laughs> and I I loved it. I I picked Irrational because there was just something I got off the plane and I remember walking around Boston. Oh man, what was the moment? I think it was I went to get a slice of pizza the day before the interview and I walked into this yeah. pizza place and I said there was nobody in this place, right? Like this is a tiny hole in the wall in Quincy. And I go up to the counter. I'm like, mm, I don't know. What's the best pizza here? And the guy goes, they're all good. Just pick one. Uh, like, he just <laughs> did not have time for me. Like, did not have time for my bullshit. Just pick a slice of pizza. And I'm like, why is this man so angry? There's nobody else here. Like, hey, we can't have a conversation. What, what else do you have to do? I know. But that I loved it. I was like, oh, I'm home. Because like, I hate that. I hate that. I hate going to a coffee place and... The person in front of you is talking with a barista, you know, and it's like and I have being indecisive and yeah, it's like I have things to do. I and so, it's stupid, but I've like it's kind of San Francisco's kind of got like this really chill vibe, which is fun yep. for a while, but I've got things to do, and and the novelty just, can wear off after a little while. Yeah, there's just something about Boston that was just like, oh, I belong here. This is home. Like, this takes me back. I, I was born in Connecticut. I was used to New England culture. This is right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, something about that, the smell of the air. I was just like, eh, this is home. I didn't realize this was home until I got here, but now I do know it's home. So I should probably find I made the right decision. Here. Good. Yeah. So, was so what was it like working uh, on, again, having transferred from uh, working with Dave and a, and a smaller team, but admittedly growing? Mm-hmm. Um, to then working on uh, working on Bioshock with Irrational, with Ken, uh, with the rest of the team as well, and on a fairly prominent IP at this point. I mean, you know, there was a lot of pressure placed upon that game, courtesy of the debut trailer, but also courtesy of the original Bioshock, and even you know, you know, a lot of people attached to all Ken's history to a lot of other titles even prior to that to the game as well. There was a lot of external pressure being put upon the game and the team. I'd imagine. What was that like uh, jumping in? to the studio and then as you spent more time with them with that external buzz um the buzz didn't get to me so much i'm trying to think of what it was like uh and and i will say part of i i didn't get game developer magazine or know that game developers existed until i joined the games industry and i was not ever interested in design up until pretty recently so i actually didn't know ken levine was famous i didn't yeah okay i didn't know like any of these people were famous like my first job was tech i like i met john romero because he was the he was the creative on the first project at slipgate ironworks i knew he yes. was famous but dave brevik like i'd never heard of him ken levine i found out about because before my interview they give you a like a pamphlet about irrational and there's a whole bio of ken levine it's like this person is famous and you should probably know these things uh, it's like okay cool thank you thank you i didn't actually know that um yeah which is equal parts funny and uh, you know I was an idiot. I had no idea what I was getting into, really. I didn't know I was supposed to be stressed out. Um, well, again, though, I mean, you know, linking back to what we discussed bef- before with your time just purely consuming games, it was all about the game, not necessarily the the people behind them. You didn't have that understanding of what was going on behind it, which means you didn't necessarily at any point begin to form this association between particular individuals or particular studios even and the, the titles themselves. So I can understand that. Yeah, so... So and the ignorance is helpful in a way, because like if you don't know you're supposed to be nervous, you won't be nervous. Uh, yeah. Which I, I'm ashamed at how often that's helped me out in life, uh, especially around GDC <laughs> and stuff. I have a lot of stories about that. But the um, in this case, I went to Irrational. Uh, I 
was hired, they, they had several people applying for the job that I applied for and they picked two of us uh, for what was really only, um, they'd only intended to get one person, but they liked both me and Jeremy for different reasons. Yeah. And that gave us a great deal of freedom that they basically said, you're both interesting artists with your own perspectives. Um, you, that we're going to task you at like half of your time. Um, and let us know what you see to improve with the studio as far as like the, in a tech art sort of way, cause we have no tools yeah. here. Um, you know, tell us what you think you should be doing, which was an incredible amount of responsibility to give to somebody who has only been in the industry for like about four or five years at that point, yes. I think. Um, but, uh, I loved that. That was wonderful. And it turned out irrational games, they had been together for a very long time and, as far as the art pipeline goes, they had never really upgraded that. Uh, they just, uh, there isn't a lot of people moving around and upgrading technology in Boston as there is in yeah, somewhere okay. like San Francisco or a major hub. So they'd moved on to the latest engine, sure, but like they were still using 3ds Max. They were still using the same tools for um, their rigging on uh, Bioshock yeah, okay. Infinite as they were on the original Bioshock. They def by the time I got there, we couldn't upgrade the rigs. Most of my job was doing things like figuring out, um, we knew we wanted to use cloth because cloth looked awesome. And so working with NVIDIA to get the, the cloth dynamic system looking good and figuring out ragdolls and how to make the ragdolls better in Bioshock Infinite than they were in the original yep. Bioshock and things like that. That sort of, my job was to hunt out these ways that the game could be better in a sort of tech art way, but that don't technically fall into programming or into the art side of things. Um, and I was given a lot of free reign to go do that. And uh, I think this was a very unusual thing, to be honest. I, I can't, no studio, no two studios are exactly alike. They're all very no, of different. And even when you're in a large studio, your experience on your team is going to be so different from somebody else's experience on a different team. Because who you work with, you only really, no matter where you are, you only really work with maybe 10 people on any given day. Uh, like, the art team will work with each other or the anim the animation team at Irrational alone was like fully loaded 12 people. So, yeah. Okay. Right. So it's not like I, I can't really tell you what it's like to be a designer at Irrational. Those people have a completely different life than me. Um, I will say as a tech artist, I did work with a large number of people at different times uh, just because it is such a more interdisciplinary uh job that i have versus yes. somebody who's just only a hard surface modeler or something like that which i'd um, imagine linking to that question that i asked before like this would have been a good job to explore those different disciplines within the industry and and see those different sides because you did get to to float a little bit between different between oh different yeah sections oh yeah it was it was uh i was extremely fortunate they let me do basically whatever i wanted so long as it was cool like basically <laughs> that's the I one would, criteria yeah, well, I they would task me, but they did. Um, they would task me, and I would give them the estimates for how long things would take. But about at least half of my time was to just. I, I mean, we never officially said this, and nobody, I don't think, really ever really truly realized it. But about half of my time was spent just figuring out what it was that I thought the game needed, and then doing it. Um, yeah. Okay. And. Or just at times, to be completely honest, figuring out what was interesting to me and then just doing it uh, in a way that made the game better. So yep. there, there was a, I had a great deal of creative freedom in that way and I could go work with anybody and there would be times when I like, I came up 
with an idea and I worked, I managed to steal a bit of a programmer's time and we implemented a new node in the animation tree that let me make something where now uh, a, a person could head, could body track you in 360 degrees or I wanted, yeah, okay. uh, it's hard to explain all the little things that make a game. Like when you open that door in Bioshock Infinite and there's a kid uh, riding on a, a person's shoulders. That person yes. is an AI that's walking around. And all that was, was I was, I wanted that moment. I wanted a kid on that person's shoulder. So what do you need? You need an animated attachment. You need to find a way to sync this locomotion animation between this person and this kid. You need to, um, there's a lot of technical problems that come with something like that. Uh, that yeah, I'd imagine, solved. yeah, you, as soon as you've got bodies kind of colliding in some way, then all of a sudden there's a, there's a can of worms that you're opening there. Exactly. And so... So that came from two things. That came from there. I had already started some tech for uh, animated attachments that sync to a person, and I started thinking about what I what would be cool to do with it. And I was starting to think about this scene that I also knew existed, where you open these yep. doors, and I MacGyvered a kid, and it worked. I got it to working like eighty to ninety percent of the way there without any help at all, and I'd show that to people, and then I'd be like, "Hey, I think this would be cool in the game, but here's the reasons why I can't quite do it yet on my own." And that would be yeah. Let's I, let's polish it off. Let's finish it off. Exactly. And so a lot of the stuff I did was stuff like that. Um, little moments where birds fly away when you open things. Little these little flourishes in the world. All of the background characters and environments in the world it was kind of like what and, I what I owned. Yeah, and I mean, as someone who you know comes at Bioshock Infinite as purely a consumer of it, it's those little touches. Some of the ones that you mentioned, and a whole host of others that I'm sure may or you may or may not have had your fingers in as well. Um, that really add to the immersion and enjoyment of that game. It's it's the little touches around the world and the little things you see, or maybe sometimes just the things that you hear as well, um, that that build out that immersion and yeah. and make it just a so much more fascinating experience. And sometimes it's intentional, and sometimes it's not. A lot of time, a lot of the uh, moments that people call out as being some of their favorites were definitely driven by like, oh man, we need to put a thing here. Like the biggest thing that I'm I'm like famous for this stupid thing. There's this moment in the Paris DLC where there's this kid holding a baguette over his head, skipping, <laughs> skipping around a pillar. Uh, yeah, okay. And, and like people post, like it's in memes and stuff. People post videos of this and everything. But really what that came down to is like the scene, the scene looked boring and static and I wanted to put something there and we didn't have time to get an asset. And so what I did was there was this, animation from the original game where you're on the boardwalk and elizabeth goes up to the uh this circle of people that are holding each other's hands and dancing yep. i took that i took that animation i took the i retargeted it onto a kid and i uh ik targeted his hands up so that he was just dancing in a circle and i'm like there that adds motion but it looks stupid because his hands are up i'll Let's put a baguette hold so just put a baguette in his hands now and turned his wrists 180 degrees so they were in rather than out and that was it. And like, it was literally something I did in four hours. And, that and the internet shit. loves it. Yeah, the internet loved it. It's, and it was so, like, it's just a random thing, you know? Um, there's so much stuff like that. Uh, not all of it gets noticed. I'd say the thing that I worked really hard on for a long time, like a personal pet project of mine, was I really wanted to rig an octopus because it is yeah, okay. alarmingly difficult. This is a creature animating an octopus. They have eight limbs. Sometimes they kind of pull, sometimes they kind of push. They sort of have to slide on the ground. It, it kind of has to make sense. It's a difficult thing to rig 
something that can switch between an IK spline and an FK spline. And I just yeah. wanted to do it really badly. So I, I like modeled an octopus that I eventually got somebody to, to uprest, uh, rigged it, animated it. And I think we, in the end, we only put it in one tiny, tiny place in the, um, in one of the, in burial at sea. And I don't know so if So it kind of goes unnoticed. It. Yeah. Like most stuff is like that. It's just something I like did. Most of my work just kind of either gets cut or isn't noticed. And the stuff that, that people notice is always like the thing you did at four o'clock on a Friday to get the thing done. Which is... Yeah, right. So it's, you, you look at you know, it's not even really my best work. It's, <laughs> it's there. Like, it's like, dude, we just need motion. I put a baguette in his hands. The internet loves it. <laughs> the octopus, which was like my, my magnum opus, right? Uh, just nobody's found this thing. It's in a tiny fish tank in Barry. Let's see. Well, hopefully we've got uh, people that are listening today that will now go back, play Burial at Sea and go, oh, the octopus, I see it. You're right. Okay, cool. Um, so hopefully we've, we've uh, turned a few people's eyes towards that as a result of uh, this show today. Uh, what, so you mentioned, obviously, when, when you decided to jump on board with the studio that uh, you'd seen that debut trailer and that the game didn't ultimately become that. And I'll, that's that's a thing that you know mm. people internal and external have kind of commented about over the journey is that the, you know the, the game transformed. Mm. Where do you, like in terms of what the game became, and detaching your own involvement to certain aspects of it as much as you possibly can anyway, um, are you still happy with how the game transformed from from what it was to what it ultimately became, or would you have liked to have seen a bit more of that original vision? or at least what was portrayed in that trailer anyway, emerge in the final product? Well, I mean, I, I think the reason why a game changes in development is because you find that what you were initially going for wasn't fun. And so, yes, I, I think it's easy to look at that trailer and think, oh, that would have been an amazing, incredible game, and it's not a shame that they moved away from that. Well, we didn't move away from it for no reason. We moved away yeah. from it because it was not fun. Um, and so, no, I, I'm, I'm much happier with the game we have today because the game we have today is, you know, playable Fantastic. and, and fun. It. Yeah, versus the thing that was not fun that was changed, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's, uh, that, I mean, that's a, that's a great way of looking at it because, yeah, I think a lot of people, they do, like, especially a trailer, it's, it, you know, these things are spliced up, they're cut up, they're designed in such a way to catch people's eye and, and set a bit of a tone and that's not necessarily representative of the final product. Mm-hmm. So um, that makes that makes a, a lot of sense, and obviously from that point on, games transform, they change, they develop based on a whole host of feedback and and issues that you may or may not encounter through development. So that, so that makes a, a, a lot of sense. Um, what about so we obviously mentioned burial at sea and the octopus, and but what what was that like being able to you you weren't a part of the original Bioshock, but this was obviously referencing a lot of the original Bioshock uh, in that DLC. What was, what was that like, kind of being, not having some of that same experience that other people would have had? Um, I mean, I... Hmm, what can I say about this? I definitely am glad that we did have the people from the original Bioshock there. Like, my... Yeah. Uh, Sean Robertson, the person who's in charge of my team, uh, did have that experience, and he could bring that to the table, and that was huge. Um... I hope I represented the game as best as I could. Um, no, I think Beryl at Sea is fantastic. 
as as a consumer of it like that was i i loved going back and i love walking the world and and obviously the the second piece of dlc in particular was was very different to what we'd gotten with the rest of the game there um i, I loved it yeah it was definitely fun to work on um yeah that was definitely fun to work on uh the what can i say I I think it was a mix of having the old guard there. Ken Levine obviously was there writing, and he's this game is very much his vision. Um, yeah, he's very hands on, and he will get the game he wants to get done. Um, we had the old art director there and everything, and uh, they made sure that no matter what, the game captured that feeling from the original Bioshock while also having the the team that. Had, helped make Bioshock Infinite as beautiful as it was there working alongside of them. Um, so I, I think it it worked out pretty well. I hope... I, I don't know too much about the next Bioshock game. Oh, the yeah, the one that's being worked on a cloud chamber, yeah. Yeah, but I, from what I understand, they, they're also doing a mix of the old team and the new team. Like, they, a lot of the people who are working there are new, but I know a lot of people from Bioshock Infinite have moved over to, to work at cloud chamber, so... I'm hopeful that they're able to pull off something similar. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of us that are looking forward to to that uh, that game and seeing what becomes of it. Because obviously, I mean, even as of when we talk today, it's been seven years since uh, since Infinite came out. Obviously, another year then with the DLC as well. But it's it's been quite a period, and there's a lot of intrigue around this franchise. So it'd be kind of exciting to see where they take what was established with the first game, what you and the team built upon with Infinite. And then, and not to mention, obviously, Bioshock Two, which wasn't an irrational game, but um, what those three games kind of meant and how they will inform the the path that the new game goes, it'll be quite fascinating to watch. Yeah, but in I the mean, meantime, oh, go ahead. oh, sorry, go for it. No, no, go for it. Oh, I I am curious too because Bioshock Two was developed by an external team, and I will say this next game does not have Ken Levine, and so I am yes. very curious to see what what it ends up being without Ken Levine. I mean, I'm I'm just sitting here waiting to see how, where that ends up, just like everybody else. Um, yeah, yeah, it'll be it'll be really fascinating, I'm sure. Yeah. So from uh, from there, after after having worked on Burial at Sea, you transitioned again, and you uh, and I, I was uh, quite taken aback actually when I saw your name uh, when I saw your name next. To him, I'm like, oh, I kickstarted uh, <laughs> what was there, what was developed in the last flood with uh, Flame in the Flood. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't realise at the time, and I was far more of just purely a consumer at that point. Um, and it was only when I started doing a bit of research. Oh, oh, hang on a second, righto, and everything started firing. So how did? Uh, so obviously, we we know there's a lot of documentation about what happened with the rational there. And uh, mm. did were you? I'm trying. To, I'm trying to remember the timeline in my head. You would have been out before all that happened, I'm guessing? No, no. I was laid no, off with everybody else. Laid yeah. off. Okay. So, I, yeah, I loved Irrational. I wouldn't have left. Um, the studio shut down and we all lost our jobs. And I had always in the back of my head thought, someday I'll go indie. Like, someday yeah. I will start my own company. There's something about being in San Francisco where you just get instilled with this feeling that, you know, you should be in charge because you know more than everybody and you should be an entrepreneur. And th- there's just a a feeling that comes from San Francisco that was instilled in me. And I, it was always kind of there nagging. And I always thought, yeah, yeah, someday I should start a studio because I know what I'm doing. Um, but it happened a little earlier than you'd anticipated. Well, I, I was the other side of it, I would say it was a, kind of like a pipe dream. I was more and more like, mm, but I really love my job. And then the job stopped. And all of a sudden I was in Boston and 
there's not that many studios in Boston, especially keep in mind how spoiled I was, where I was allowed to, to really have an incredible amount of creative freedom. Uh, finding that in a AAA studio, getting a studio to trust you enough to let you do that kind of work um, is extremely It'd be difficult. be quite hard. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know where I would be able to get that again, and I was really bummed about trying to find that again, and I was sad again because again I'm laid off. Um, and I had always had this idea of going indie, and I was kicking around like maybe I just don't get a job, maybe I go indie, and it turned out several other people were as well. So six of us got together and we founded a studio together. It's kind of almost a co-op. We all equally owned the studio. Yeah. Um, we kickstarted a game that was the Flame in the Flood, and we made that game, which I guess you're one of our Kickstarter backers. Yeah, which I mean, yeah, like I said, I didn't, I didn't realize before uh, before we we're going to be having this chat, and I like I, I knew about Bioshock. I obviously knew about all the Chump Squad stuff, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, but I didn't. That was that was a little blank spot in there that I didn't realize, and it was only when I trolled through LinkedIn really uh, that I that I made that attachment. I thought, oh, that's fantastic. So. Yeah. What, what was that like being a part of a Kickstarter? Um, again, like having co- having come from a rational, there's a lot of, se- well, until there wasn't, there was a lot of security in that. And then all of a sudden, okay, now my fate is purely in the hands of the masses and whether they like what we're putting together. Yeah, I mean, um, it was terrifying in a way. I, I mean, initially it wasn't terrifying. It was all very, very exciting initially because we didn't, uh, uh, I mean, we managed to get that Kickstarter together quite quickly. We were laid off and I want to say like officially we were laid off in April and we were, we had that Kickstarter out in the fall. Um, yep. Oh, and October was, 8th, 2014, I've got written down. Yeah. So we managed to get that together quite quickly. Uh, there were six of us. We all kind of coalesced on a vision very quickly. We made that entire game in, in two years um, from the point we were funded. Yep. Uh, and so, yeah, it was all just raw excitement and adrenaline at that point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, what, what came of it was still a fantastic product. Yeah. I'm a big I, fan of uh, Flame in the Flood. I'm glad you liked it, yeah. So it was a really small team. There were six of us. I was the I got to do a lot more there because I was the only animator. So I got to animate again, which is actually something I don't get to do much most of the time. Yeah. Because uh, I'm usually supporting other artists on top of doing like shader stuff. I, I Creatively, it was a very fulfilling job. It was also really interesting. I was a CFO, so I was the one that like looked over our contracts talked to the accountant, made sure everybody paid their taxes. And that gave me the groundwork to eventually go solo and make my own studio. It was the learning yep. there of being on the business side of things that was a really critical piece. I don't think I could have just gone from irrational to being independent on my own. I really needed that that middle step, which was the flame in the flood and working with those guys. So you obviously spoke about when it came to irrational there and had they not closed, you would have been very happy to stay. Um, so... Then all of a sudden, in ultimately a you know a few years, you've gone from big team to kind of a, a small team to I'm gonna I'm gonna go solo. That is a that's a that's a, f- a fair walk from where you were uh, at your time at in, at Irrational there. Uh, how how did that develop in your head to go from I'm I'm comfortable with this and this is what I want to do to I'll go out of my own I'll strike out and and see what I can make of this whole thing. Oh man! Well, because I mean, ultimately, the- you know, as as a lot of people might know, uh, Molasses Flood is still still developing games. It's not like there was a closure or anything like that. They only just recently put out Drake Hollow. Yeah. Did you have anything to do with that along the way before you before you left? I had started that. So we yeah. um, we made the Flame in the Flood. It was actually initially a massive 
flop. We were always three months from closing the studio. And uh, yeah, there's okay. a lot here that I'll, I'll go... Um, like, you look back with rose-colored glasses. I had a great time at the Molasses Flood. I genuinely did. But it was also extremely stressful. We founded that studio with six people. Of those people, uh, four people left. One person did eventually come back. Um, yep. I'm one of the four people that left. Uh, it, we... I, I want... My intention was to go down with the ship there, and I honestly believed the ship was going to go down. I think that was yeah, okay. the that was actually the problem. Um, so we were after the flame and the flood came out, we had started another project, uh, which we canceled, and then we had started another project, and we were pitching that for funding. All the while, the flame and the flood was actually doing better and better unexpectedly. Like our second year, it was we had more revenue than our first year um, when we came out in the start to get some legs. Yeah, I was just surprised. Like, what was initially a flop turned around for us in a really big way. And so we were always close to folding the studio. Maybe we were doing contract work for a while. Like, I um, I was contracted out to Double Fine, and I was working on Psychonauts 2 for a while. Um, yeah, okay. On top of other things, I worked on Marvel's, like, just a bunch of different games and stuff. Uh, so it's not like there was a, a one-to-one relationship here. And when I, when I had eventually left, basically what happened was... I started an indie game on the side because we had all gone down to working part-time just to keep the lights on. Uh, and yep. we were all privately contracting for different people. And rather than contracting, I had started a small indie project and I fell in love with that project. And we were like three months from closing the studio. So I was like, you know what? I'll go down with the ship and as soon as the studio closes, I'll go make kind. And I was always like that. As soon as the studio closes, I'll go make kind. And it was like that for like months. And then we got a funding deal. And I realized the studio wasn't going to close. And I was heartbroken, which is a really <laughs> fucked up place to be. Like if you founded a studio and you're really bummed out that the studio is going to survive, something's wrong. Um, and so I talked to the other founders about it. And it was really clear. Like there was no mystery here. Gwen was obviously in love with her side project. Uh, yeah. So so they all felt like <laughs> it was only a matter of time before this happened anyway. Yeah. And so we worked out a deal and I... Uh, I stuck around. I made sure I trained up uh, somebody to replace me on the animation side. Um, I handed that project off, and I, I left uh, while they were very early in Drake Hollow to to go pursue my side project, which became Kine. Uh, no, that's that, that's fantastic. And, yeah, I mean, like I said, a, 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 quite a walk from your time at Irrational, but sounds like you, you really found your calling. Yeah, I, I loved – that was fun, man. That was, like – I don't know how to put it. <clears throat> like it, it, that game meant so much to me. It was so much fun to work on, and I really, I, I mean, there was a lot of different emotional inflection points there. There was a time when I was like, I will make this game solo no matter what, and then there was a time when I was like, you know what? If I can get funding and I can make a better game, all I care about now is that the game is as good as possible. And so I did. I went get got funding and and uprise the game a bit. And there was this emotional giving up. Some like you have. When you go from being a solo developer to, to working with people, you have to give up some amount of creative control. And I didn't want to give up any, but I did. And, and you know... I, yeah, I, and your hand does get forced a little bit as a result. Yeah, which is a good thing. It's I love collaborating with other people. You know, it's just hard when you've started out with something and it's your baby to give it up. Uh, but oh, I, yeah, you get, get possessive. In, and not necessarily in a, in a bad way, but there's this great degree of ownership over this thing. And to relinquish some of that, even if it's a very small portion would be a hard thing for anyone to do when they've 
they've they've mapped out a whole pathway and a, new, a vision in their head and to allow other voices in there they might be fantastic voices you know if you're pulling anyone in it's because you believe that they are going to be able to contribute something valuable to the project but all of a sudden there might be some degree of conflict over i don't mean conflict in a nasty sense but like creative conflict over um a path that you've got to go down and oh geez i need to entertain this perspective because it could actually be for the betterment of the project yeah, I mean, your artists aren't just like your hands. They don't just go execute yeah. stuff that you would do, uh, but for you. Like, that's not the role of an artist. You don't hire an artist to just to not have a perspective, you know? You yeah. hire an artist because you expect them to have a perspective and you you encourage them to do so and, and you want to integrate that into your game. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of giving up what you... Giving up the absolute creative control. There was a yeah. bit of that. There was a lot of different weird inflection points as far as kind goes. It was a very emotional game to work on. And it was it's by far the thing I'm the proudest of. Of all the titles. No, that's I've fantastic. Done. I mean, uh, like it's it's a beautiful looking game. Um, I'm not sure how many people might be overly familiar with it, so we should probably talk a little bit about the game itself because a lot of people will know of Flame in the Flood or Bioshock and those sort of things. Kind, maybe not necessarily as much. Um, so... Let's let's talk through the game. What actually is it for starters? It's, it's a puzzle game of sorts, but but that's that's a very surface level description. Yeah. So there's so much more to it than that. So how how would you best describe it? Ooh, it's hard to describe in words. It's so much easier to show somebody a video because it is oh, very. Sure. It's very much like a 3D spatial puzzle game, right? You have to um, you have to manipulate these characters in uh, 3D space to kind of get them to a goal location. And there's a lot of things I was exploring here with with this game. It, uh, at the surface level, I was exploring what it's like to to actually just the raw mechanics, what it's like to have this character, these characters that can move in 3D space in these sort of weird ways and seeing what kind of fun and interesting um, puzzles spawn out of characters that move in these weird ways in 3D yep. space in this 3D grid. Um, I, I also just wanted to explore, is it possible to tell a story entirely through puzzles, through choreography of characters moving around? Um, because this is how you progress a story, this is how you progress through the game, is by completing these 3D spatial puzzles. And I wanted to tell this story about these three little machines that dream of being musicians and how they get together and form a band. And, and I wanted to see if I could make people feel feelings. Like, can a puzzle make you feel sad? Can you feel pity for something based because it's limping? Especially if you have to act out the act of this character limping. Um, can you make a... First off, you to do that you have to make a puzzle that feels like limping, and you have to somehow capture that emotion, make it make this seem like a pitiful character that you should pity, you know. Um, and yeah, so, and that that is that is uh, a tricky thing to to really master as well. Oh yeah, in development. I I mean it, it, it's not something I'm done with. It's something that I this is just a really fun thing to explore. There's a lot of fun things to explore here that I just kind of want to keep exploring in different ways. Um, yeah. So Kind is a narrative puzzle game about these three little machines that dream of being musicians, and you play through the game and you experience it by completing these kind of spatial 3D puzzles. And, uh, you know, it's available now. Um, so when you, obviously this was this dream that was starting to build through your time at the Molasses Flood, and then it's finally out there. What was that feeling like when you finally were able to let go of the reins and it took off into the world and oh when it launched you, when it launched yeah when it launched yeah 
Man, that was a lot of things. I think but the problem is by the time it launched, I was so tired. Because I had finished up the game months before, and at that point, I yeah. had just been porting. Because I didn't launch like on PC. I launched on every console, Google Stadia, uh, Epic Game Store, and I launched in eight languages. And there's all these combinatoric problems when you try to do something like that. There's yeah. the reality of um, solving your... The fact that German looks weird only on handheld on the Switch, it overflows oh, this okay. box. Like, there's all the bugs that come out from something like that. There's all the bugs that come out when you're... The the trials and problems from making something on a new platform. Because Stadia was fully new, and this was a launch title on Stadia. Uh, and it was just... There was just so much there that by the time I launched, I hadn't done anything creatively or thought about the game from, like, a creative standpoint in months. And I was yep. just tired. So... I think the launch week was more of a blur of like, oh god, I hope there aren't bugs. Okay, there are. Like, it was more. Okay, I need to, I need to fix these, but I really need to sleep. <laughs> yeah, like that would be more the vibe. I didn't think I actually. It didn't really sink in what I had done until about a month later. When I was like, oh wow, hey, I did it. And I remember I was playing the game again on PC. Um, where was I? Oh, I was getting it ready for PAX, and I just felt this incredible pride. And then taking it to PAX and watching people play it at PAX just filled me with so much joy uh, after launch. That was when I actually felt it, when I could actually see people playing and enjoying the game after launch, and I realized what I had done. That was the moment, I think. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's that's something I regularly hear from various developers, uh, is that when, when they actually get to see it in the hands of consumers or prospective consumers, and the faces light up, especially when it's the, the person that, didn't necessarily know about the game. They've just walked past and it's caught their eye mm-hmm. and they've wandered over and picked it up and just this moment where they, they fall in love with the game is one of the most valuable and memorable experiences that people have in game development. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's the best feeling. I mean, I feel that way. The fans are always why you do this. I know it's cliche, yep. but it's true. There's so many times, I'll every show I go to, every single time I see somebody cosplaying as Elizabeth, I run up and kind of like take a selfie with them. <laughs> I yeah, never, and that's fair enough too I never explain it like I just have walls of like I just have a folder on my drive with just photos of people who are cosplaying selfies with Elizabeth yeah because it means something to reach people it means something when you've made something to create something that reaches people on an emotional level matters um, yeah and when they when they have fallen in love with something you've created that much they then decide to make that in some small way part of their own identity yeah. That says a massive amount to anyone who was responsible for creating that character in the first place. Oh, absolutely. There's no feeling like it. No, that's that, that's fantastic. Moving from, from Kine, we've now got a new project to talk about, Labrat. Yeah, that's right. How did that come about? Because, um, uh, again, at surface level, uh-huh. it's a puzzle game, but there's far more to it than that. It is, yeah. So this was a combination of things. It's hard to say where ideas come from, right? I, I definitely didn't intend to make another puzzle game. I will say that. Um, I wanted to make something that was a little more market viable. <laughs> I wanted to grow a studio again. I, yep. I want to collaborate with other people. I, I knew out of the gate I, I really wanted to start out collaborating with other people. And so I had planned to make a tact- uh, tactics game, like a tactical RPG. I've always, yeah, okay. I've always loved tactical RPGs. Discaos, Lots of, of challenges favorite. with those. Yeah. Uh, so I... Um, and the goal was to, to build a studio around this, to, to secure some funding, to create enough to, to get some funding, get some funding, and then grow a studio. Uh, and I remember March hit, and I had 
been working on this for months, um, and I wasn't really happy with the prototype that I had started, and it was dragging on, and more and more the coronavirus was spinning up, and it occurred to me that like it was just going to be very difficult to fly around and to secure funding, and I was kind of getting really burnt out um, on this project and just in general, and so I. I took a break and then I did a game jam with uh, some people who are in a niche puzzle discord with me. Like I, at this point, because of kind, I know a lot of puzzle designers that are like yeah. really, uh, really obsessed with niche Sokoban style puzzles. Um, <laughs> and I, I am too. Like I, I still love those games. I love them. I adore them. There's just so much to explore in this space. It's unbelievable. It's such an untapped genre still. Um, so was there a degree of, uh, given that you'd obviously already done the work on Kine, you were exploring a different genre there for the longest time, but coming back to it, in what uh, coming back to the genre was almost like coming home again, uh, like a war, like or not not quite that extreme. It, it felt good. I'll say yeah. that. I don't know if I would say it was coming home again, but it felt good. It felt good. It was really fast to spin up too because I'd already taken Kine. Uh, stripped away a lot of stuff to make it more 2D and reworked it for the tactics game, but it had that core yep. of being kind under the hood. And so turning it from a tactics game back into another Sokoban game was lightning fast. Like, I stood up that prototype in a week. We were the, Our oh, initial right. prototype, uh, which was yep. definitely a completely different game, by the way, about social distancing in a grocery store. Like, we wanted to make, oh, a, okay. uh, we wanted to make a funny little game jam about uh, the coronavirus and the situation we found ourselves in. And I started working when we on... all thought that it was a novel, little funny thing, and then all of a sudden, yeah, and then it oh. got it, it rapidly became not funny. Um, and but I liked the mechanics quite a bit, and I didn't want to abandon this game that we had started this little game jam, and we'd been working on it for like two weeks. Um, uh, I was working on this with somebody named Lucas Lislo, who's a puzzle designer, yep. and uh, I just had this moment where I'm like, man. I want to work on this, but I do not want to make a game about the coronavirus. Um, I just, I was imagining talking about it to people. Uh, it's a funny game about being at a grocery store and you're social distancing, isn't that? Haha, no. Like and people are dying everywhere. There's yeah, just it's... like, I tried really hard to write marketing copy or like, what am I going to say about this? And I just couldn't come up with an elevator pitch that didn't make me want to throw up. So I said, we, we just have to change this. Let me think about it. And, um, it just so happened there was a couple of other things that came together. I had spent a week doing a personal game jam back in January of this year yep. of uh, about the election. I was supposed to be political humor. Uh, yeah, okay. Where I was just exploring what happens when different people are... Uh, uh, basically, I had, like... It, nothing came of it. It was terrible. I had reinvented the, uh, like, a BuzzFeed poll, basically. Like, it was so... Yeah, okay, really, right. It's hard to be... It, political humor is hard, especially now. Um, yes. It, it's hard to be funny about politics, just like it's hard to be funny about COVID. Turns out neither of those are very funny. <laughs> Overly funny in the eyes of the majority. No. Like, and I don't have the whatever it takes. Somebody can pull off being funny about those two subjects, but it's not me. Uh, it, and it's probably not while we're in the midst of it either. No. When we're able to hopefully, touch, touch wood, we're able to stand you know, a year plus removed from COVID again oh, hopefully yeah uh, that we're able to then poke a little bit of fun at it maybe it'll be a little bit easier to pitch to people but until that point probably safest to stay away yeah 
so so I sat down. I was like, okay, well, we're here. We're in the coronavirus. I don't know how long this is going to go on at this point. Like it's mid March, and it's clear it's going to be longer than a couple weeks. Um, and I I wanted to. Most of the stuff I work on comes from a feeling, um, either a tech demo or a feeling. And in this case, I had both. I had a tech demo of these sort of um, mechanics where at the time it was like a grocery sh- <laughs> a shopping cart would get infected on different four different sides. This completely changed, obviously. Um, so I had these yeah, mechanics but- that were interesting in this tech demo, this tech that was interesting. And I had this feeling. And this feeling was, I am at home. Uh, well, I want to make people laugh. I, I want to bring people joy. I don't want to be a downer right now. Uh, and I have this feeling where I'm at home and I can't talk to people. And the only way I ever speak with anybody is through this computer and everything I do is being tracked and monitored. And um, I go on Facebook and Facebook is coming to these weird conclusions about me as a person because of stuff that I've searched for or the Google, yeah, the algorithms. I'm in a Google bubble where the Google's assuming these things about me. And and this is absurd. And so I want to poke fun at how absurd this is. So what is the game that does that? So I, I sat down and I was like, okay, the quickest way to turn this into something that captures the feeling that I feel right now. What is that? And I, I tried to make that. Um, and that became Labrat. You're this character. And, and I sensed a little bit, you know, without knowing the background behind it and, you know, purely just thinking about what I've seen from the trailers um, literally since you've, you've just mentioned it. Like I can, I can see a little bit of that humor in it. That, and how how that obviously is extrapolated in the final product is still something you're you're working on. But I I couldn't attach it to something when I when I watched the trailer. But with that little nugget of, of background there, now I see. Okay, here's where all the jokes are connecting. This now makes infinitely more sense to me. Yeah, I mean it's still congealing as a game, and because uh, it will be a full five or six hour experience, right? So that's a lot of game, yeah. uh, and things change during development, right? But but I still did want to capture that uh, that feeling. There is still definitely this thing where if when you go into the game and you start playing a puzzle, you can see everybody else in the world that is currently playing that puzzle. You see their Steam tags. Um, yeah, okay. Or when you... Com- the, as the narrative, the way the narrative progresses is um, this machine learning algorithm a- asks you questions and you respond to these polls and these Likert polls and things. Um, and the machine learning algorithm will take a look at the results and the results are real. This is what everybody is, I'm actually polling people and it will come to some absurd conclusions about humanity based on the results of these polls. Um, and everything you do is being misinterpreted by the machines. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was kind of like the, that was a feeling I, that was really important to me to capture. That was like the, the genesis of the idea. And it's something that I think is still like that beating heart is still there through the game right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, on a humor from the humor perspective, I think that's going to be great. Like, I, I can't, oh, I couldn't count the number of times that myself and my wife have gone, like, we're just scrolling through our feeds or we've Googled something or whatever, and, and that prediction is there. Like, how? Or I said this thing once and here it is. Like, I didn't even write in my like, And there's there's always those questions that people are asking, and, and eventually it's the, are they listening to me? And you get the conspiracy deep end sort of rubbish. But, um, to then be able to poke a bit of fun at that, I think that's going to be fantastic. Like, I'm really looking forward to it, through, uh, if nothing else, because I can have a really good laugh at this thing that currently, right now, completely baffles me. Like, how do they know that? How do they come up with that? Yeah. How does this happen? Yeah, it's been a fun project to, to work on. Um, it's ironic because this is supposed to be a game jam I did just while COVID went on, but then COVID went on forever, and apparently so is the game. 
Uh, and I'm I'm loving working on this game. I, I really do think it's going to turn into something quite special. And in the meantime, are there, and not to just completely dismiss Lab Rat because, again, I mean, I just spoke about how I think, especially uh, through that humor lens, this could be something fantastic. But uh, are, this, are there still ideas kind of bubbling along in the background for this tactical RPG? I assume, is there some sort of intent to one day when the world allows you to get back to that and flesh that out further? I mean, I don't know. We'll see where this game goes and then we'll figure out what to do after that. Like right now, um, I'm, my focus is entirely on the game that I'm making right now on getting yeah. getting this to beta. Like I'm going to have a beta. Uh, I'm opening it up to closed beta in about a month and a half or two months, I think. Yep. Um, that could change a little bit. Um, uh, getting through that, then getting through the launch of this. And after that, I'll sit down and I'll reflect and I'll think about what went right and what went wrong and what I want to do in the future. I mean, I at any given moment, I'm always just doing the thing that that makes the most sense to me in that moment. Yeah, and life but do changes. You, do you have any moments? Obviously, you are wholly committed to Labrat. Do you have any moments where maybe something just pops into your head and like, oh, that'd be a good idea for the RPG? And maybe just it's this back page of a diary or something like that. We just scribble that down. Like, I'll I'll come. Like, I'll I'll look at this one day and maybe I do or maybe I don't. But you kind of do you have these little ideas still popping in your head, or are you so completely co- I guess to have a bit of tunnel vision with uh, Labrat that you're not necessarily uh, allowing yourself to entertain other ideas for the other project? Oh, you try to get the other ideas out of your head and you try to focus on one, but they're there, you know? And I, yes, of course, I have a journal with lots of ideas. Not necessarily the tactical RPG either. Um, other I things think too. I actually took a weekend off and started making like a simulation game up until the point where that got really hard. Oh, nice. Uh, just something that... Um, so a humorous simulation game for instance i, I love strategy yeah. tactics games simulation sort of games that sort of thing so there's always loads of other ideas there no that's that's fantastic i'm, I'm curious to see where obviously lab rat and any of these other perspective ideas might go in the future yep. so as we begin to wind things down i'll kind of cycle things a little bit back more towards you specifically and some of the experiences you've had and separate the games a little bit from it um is there anyone out there that you've worked with or that you look at from a distance that really inspires you in the way you go about your work? I mean, shoot, I should have a better answer for this because I feel like a lot of people ask this sort of thing a lot. Um, and I, I've always been really inspired by games more than people. And a lot of times I don't know the people that make games. I will say yeah. I was extremely inspired by the narrative work that I saw last year uh, over a couple of titles. Like, I thought last year was an incredible year for narrative. Um, off the top of my head, uh, so the writer, one of the writers I'm working with in Labrat is, yep. uh, well, the writer that is helping collaborate with me on Labrat also made a game called Eliza that I played at yeah, the okay. end of last year. Um, that, yeah, I know the one. Yeah, Eliza was fantastic. It said a lot of really intelligent things about tech, and it, it just really spoke to me. Um, shoot, what are some others? I mean, there's the games that I'll never, I'll never make something that's like a strategy game as big as Civilization. But Civilization is a game I love and adore. Um, in general, I, I look at certain people as business owners. Like I respect Bethel immensely as a Mike Bethel as a business. Oh owner. yes, yep. His ability to just crank out titles is really impressive. Uh, another and pers- really high quality ones too. Mm-hmm. I, I feel the same way about Zach from Zachtronics. The ability to to this is a person that has chosen a subgenre and just owned it 
and repeatedly yep. launches quality titles in that subgenre. I, I have an immense amount of respect for him, obviously. Um, in the puzzle space, Jonathan Blow is fantastic. He's always pushing on... Yep. Um, uh, big ideas. Big ideas, yes. Right now working on a Sokoban 2, which is very exciting. I love these. This genre is amazing. Um, so in the puzzle space, I guess perhaps those would be names. There's a lot of people that I respect immensely. Uh, uh Alan Hazelden is somebody I respect immensely. I, he's that one's a little harder to just say because he's not from afar. Like he's a friend of mine on the yeah. internet. Um, man, I could that, go on that does, you know, that doesn't preclude anyone though. Of course, like so, some of the the most valuable experiences that we all pick up and the you know people we learn from are those that we actually work right alongside and get to work with and and pick their brain and oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I small mean, small things from to be honest perspectives. Man, the the people I work with are the ones that always inspire me the most. Uh, at Irrational, it was watching Sean Robertson specifically was incredible. This is a person who knew how to manage up and manage down. He knew how to operate in, and be creative within a large team. He was somebody that I always yep. thought. At the time, I remember thinking, someday I'm going to be this person. Uh, in a way that, and obviously I went in a completely different direction. I don't work at large studios at all. And none of that, like, yep. be up-managed. Who the hell am I going to up-manage? I'm the boss. But, like, uh, I that was a person that heavily inspired me um at, at a point in my career uh, i'm i'm surrounded by incredibly talented brilliant people all the time uh, and i'm very fortunate in that way yeah that, i mean that's that's fantastic and i'm sure you're going to come across even more people over the journey that will continue to inspire and help inform as well so that's it's fantastic yeah i, I hope so man <laughs> Oh, I have no doubt about it. Me neither. So, what have what have been some of the in your eyes, and you know, maybe we're having a rough day or something like that. What have been some of the the real highlights that you're able to look back upon? If things are a little bit challenging through the day, and you know, there's something that's really causing you some difficulties in your development, is there something that you're able to look back upon and just go, "But I've got that. That that like that's that this constant bright spot that just constantly reminds you why you do this and why you enjoy doing it so much. And no matter how hard this one thing is, that's giving me the shits right now i know i can do it this uh, this is this is the proof you know what i mean <laughs> giving me the shits is not a, a standard uh, expression in america but i love it uh oh yeah sorry what, i did bring nah. in australianism into that yeah my I, bad i dig it it's cool <laughs> um so you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's always going to be a moment with the fans like it's always going to be uh a moment at pax when that little girl came up and um knew all like she must have been four or five and she knew all the names of the characters in kind and she could oh nice she, i gave her a t-shirt and she could point at them and say what they were and she would dance to the music and she could play the game better than the adults and she was adorable that moment resonates that moment resonates such a huge way or like the um god the sometimes for a specific project when i'm I'm like, I don't know if this is good or not. I'm losing sight of it. It's always better to go back and look at a trailer. And as soon as possible on any project, I don't always share them, but I always make a video that's like, here's what I'm going to make and here's why I'm going to make it. And that sets the vision for me personally. Um, yeah. And in this case, like Lab Rat now, I'm like, what am I make? Ugh, is this good? I go look at the trailer and I'm like, okay, did I capture that feeling? And that, that'll work until I make the next trailer, which will be even better. Um, and they and become then I'll, then like I'll look at that benchmarks one. for yourself. Yeah. Or tonal benchmarks. Yeah. Like, am I hitting this? Does it feel like this? Um, and rapidly, eventually, like you reach a point where the game is better than the trailer, at which point it's time to make a new trailer. And then you're like, okay, <laughs> am I hitting this? Is the game as good as this? Uh, and then you're constantly setting a new bar for yourself. Well, yeah, absolutely. You have to do that over time. 
And you're always going to be plagued by that. The first trailer that you allowed to slip into the public is always going to be the shittiest one, and you always wish you hadn't done it. <laughs> I, yeah, okay. kind of, yeah, and that's retrospect being being what it is. Yeah, because everything always, nothing gets worse. Everything always gets better. Um, things change. Which, which is good to hear. So one last kind of curly one before we deal with any social medias and all those sorts of things and where people can go to learn about the game more. Uh, if there was any one game that's ever existed that you could retroactively just add your name into the credits to as having been some way responsible for it, doesn't matter what capacity, you could even be credited as just special thanks if that's what you wanted, but your name is there, what game would it be? Oh, man. Oh, that's a very and I and, and I get some people that you know no, they instantly that's... go, oh, my favorite game, or they might say, yeah, but oh, you know you don't want the favorite... one See, my... aspect of this I... one really abstract unknown game is something I wish I could have done. Man, well, the thing is, like, there's a difference between the games you want to play and the games you want to have made. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, obviously, I play nothing but Civ and MMOs and things like that, but I, I wouldn't necessarily feel super proud to be one of an army on on World of Warcraft. I have being Sid Meier. I don't think it's necessarily my goal. I don't even think it's a goal. I just think like if I could have said that I made Disco Elysian or was on the team that made oh, that, yeah. just because I feel like those people must be so cool. Like, and I just wish I could be <laughs> as cool as the people that made that thing, you know, because um, I'm not that cool. Uh, and that has nothing to do with that. Ne- that's not necessarily my favorite title, though I have to admit that game is fantastic. It's yeah, it's just, pretty cool. It's just like you have to be pretty cool to have made that game. And I just wish I was that cool and I'm not. <laughs> I think that would have no, to be uh, Disco Elysium is a fantastic choice. That's awesome. So, Gwen, thank you very much for coming on the show today, sharing your story and the, the adventures and everything that's kind of led to this point. But for anyone who's looking to learn a little bit more, maybe reach out and try and chat uh, to learn more about the game, where would they all be best to go? Oh, man, you could do me a huge favor right now if you would go to uh, labrat.study and sign up for the beta. Another thing you could do is wishlist the game on Steam. If you go to labrat.study, you'll also see a, a link to the Steam page. If you could go wishlist that, it helps the unholy algorithms figure oh, yeah, out. <laughs> it feeds the Steam algorithms. If you could also wishlist Kind, because that is coming out um, later this year on Steam. And I'm not sure how yes. that's... Uh, because it's already come out on consoles and on everything else, I'm actually concerned that I'm, I'm not going to be able to have... Uh, to, to get enough buzz around the Steam launch. I don't even really know what to do to get buzz for the Steam launch. So, any Yeah, little... what, the, what, what happens because there's already, it's already SEO and all sorts of stuff out there for it. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I don't think it'll chart or anything at all. So any help you can give me there would be just the world to me. Um, if you want to follow the stuff I'm doing in general, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dire Goldfish on Twitter. I'm also that same handle on Twitch. If you uh, want to watch Twitch... Um, and I guess I occasionally put out YouTube videos at Gwenfrey the TA. Fantastic. Well, like I said before, thank you so much for sharing your journey and experiences so far. Uh, there's there's some incredible games you've worked at over the journey. There's some awesome ones still on the way. Obviously, as you just mentioned, Kine is about to come to Steam. You've got Labrat underway, and then who knows what is to come afterwards. There's obviously plenty of ideas bubbling away. Um, and I look forward to seeing what comes next. So thank you very much for coming aboard. Thank you for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Backwaters beyond fables and years. There's freedom Moving on, there's a silence that may.
that concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Ball James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been Gwen's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.